Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live multi-speed technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening from a very blustery South Dakota. Blustery, yeah. You had you had wind, huh? We had we had uh, tornadoes touchdown, and lots and lots of people had power outages, or you know, we we lost three or four trees being ripped out of the ground, and other people had way worse than than what we got. We saw like the farms where the grain silos were just crumpled from the pressure they just looked like a giant hand just grabbed them and squeezed them it was it's been crazy around here man well i'm sorry to hear that we haven't had a whole lot of uh wind but we've had a ton of flooding we just keep getting dumped on with rain um and snow obviously snow melt before that and so there's people all all over the place are getting water in their basement thank goodness we've been dry so far um but Mother Nature, man, gets you every time. There are lots of places that would love to have some of that rain go their way. Yeah, I suppose so. I think the farmers are happy about it until it starts to flood their fields, and then not so much. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's shake it off and uh, get into some tech. What do you think? Hey, let's do it. Feedback coming up. Our first email comes in from Kevin. Kevin writes in and says, hey, guys, I appreciate your response and expertise to my question in episode 284. Follow-up question. In the scenario, Noah outlined which utilized a Linux PC, webcam, and mic. What flavor of Linux would you load on that PC? Best, Kevin. So uh, short answer is whichever one you like, Kevin, um, whichever one you're familiar with, that's what I would recommend you check out. The There isn't a huge difference for the purpose of doing a conference PC. Effectively, what you're looking for that machine to do, recognize a webcam, recognize a USB audio interface, and run a web browser. And basically every Linux distro under the sun is going to do that for you. So whatever you're most comfortable with, if you didn't have one um, off the top of your head that you said, this is what I'm going to go with, I'm going to reach into my hat and say Ubuntu Mate because it is a very lightweight distro based on a very popular uh, distro base and is maintained by a team of people who are focused on the end user experience. So Ubuntu Mate, otherwise whatever you prefer. Our second email comes in from Frisco or Friso. Friso writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. For a nonprofit association, I'm trying to find a good form builder. Due to the GPDR, we aren't allowed to store sensitive information in countries like the USA. Although Google Forms seems to be a gray area, we would like to get rid of it. We need forms on our website to receive registration with personal information as a contact form. We have a WordPress site. So it would be nice if it was a WordPress plugin. Currently, we're using WP Forms. <clears throat> it works fine, but the main disadvantage is that it can only send registration using the email. It's not possible in the free version to store them in an Excel sheet. 
This causes a lot of extra work on our volunteers. There's also a contact form 7, which seems to have most of the features we need, but it's way less user-friendly. I've also taken a look at non-plugin alternatives. CryptPad seems promising for that, but it has a weird interface at the end of a form, saying that responses to the form are anonymized. Since we always ask for your name, this might confuse users. Do you have experience with a good free form builder? Um, so a couple things there. I have used Wufu for forms for a long time, and um, I'll have linked for you in the show notes at podcast.asknowashow.com and a link to their help article that references their privacy policy and, and how they build forms and try to keep them GPDR compliant. So you can check that out. The other thing I might recommend, have you looked into something like NextCloud form? Um, NextCloud, you can entirely self-host. You can control where that data is and more importantly, where that data isn't. You can embed it on a, in, into a site. And you can easily import or export into CSV. So you can view that information in a spreadsheet. You can pull that into some sort of a database. Um, very, very flexible way uh, that you could that you could get that working. Uh, quick note on WordPress in general. I've stayed away from WordPress. I think the industry in general is moving towards static sites. So the idea is if you're doing something dynamically, then there is a whole litany of security practices that have to come into play, and it's an ongoing target, obviously, and so you need to be aware of that. When you move into things like static site generators like Nicola or Hugo, now you have all you have a lot of the same advantages in that you can dynamically change content, but the, the site just continually gets rebuilt with static content, and so there's less of an attack vector to compromise. And so if you're worried about your user security and your user privacy, I might shy away from WordPress. Although, you know, if you're really dug into WordPress and you're already there, yeah, I can see why a plugin might make some sense. Steve, any thoughts on form building? I suppose that's kind of out of your, out of your scope. Yeah, that, that definitely falls way outside of where I'm normally at on a day-to-day basis. We'll move on to an email from Richard and James. Um, Richard and James, uh, Richard writes in first and says, hello, Noah, I'm currently running Jellyfin on a Pi 4 using Docker Compose, and it works great. Of course, you need to work with the limitation of the Pi 4. So if you expect multiple 4K streams at the same time, that's going to be a bit of an issue. But I must say, even the hardware encoding off of the Pi 4 works for transcoding streams on the fly. I'm using the Linux server Jellyfin image because it was better for the hardware encoding. The user ID, PUID, needs to be on the Pi 4 in the video group to have access to the video, video hardware decoding. Excuse me, video hardware encoding. I am running some other stuff like Home Assistant, Zigbee to MQTT on the same Pi without any issues. But I'm booting and running off the Pi from a USB 3 attached SSD drive. Thanks, Richard. Closely related, James writes in and says, Hey Noah, in a recent episode, you had somebody asking about running MB or Jellypin, Jellyfin on a Raspberry Pi for some other open platform for privacy and security. Luckily, both work great with Kodi. There is both a sync plugin available and a plugin for Kodi to directly integrate Jellyfin or MB with all of its features. The only caution I can provide is that embedded devices typically perform horribly with software decoding of video. Make sure that you get a device that is capable of hardware decoding the codec 
on your vid- on your videos typically use. Hope this helps, James. So I have to tell you, Steve, I am color me a little shocked here that we've gotten so much traffic on this concept of running jellyfin on a pie. I wouldn't have thought that there was that much interest in it, let alone that many people out there doing it. But we've mentioned it. One person wrote in, and I think this is the third time that this has come up. Are you and I missing something from our, you know, home media uh, deployments that jellyfin on a pie seems to be the way to go? I mean, you could look at it that way. I don't think so. I've I've been underwhelmed with a pie, and maybe that's just because I have very high expectations as a general rule, especially because, you know, it's not just myself and my wife watching Plex. It's my kids and my parents and my in-laws and my sister-in-law, and we don't know whenever they're going to hit that. And so there are times where I have four or five concurrent users, and that ends up maxing out the bandwidth, then they're fighting for my upload channel more than they are Mm. uh, anything else. But at the end of the day, you know what? I I want Plex to be as fast as possible. And so I know Plex is not Jellyfin, but it's the same basic principle. Like I want it to be as fast as possible. Like when I click on play, I don't want to see the swirly thing. It's on my local LAN. It needs to go. And so it has been my experience that even while the pie is getting better. Mm-hmm. It's not there yet, especially for, I have a big library of, of uh, DVDs and, and Blu-rays just like you do. And I'm not going to re-rip them or re-encode right. them just so that the pie can do a job that, you know, my Intel can do without blinking. Yeah. And I, so, you know, to me, the pie has always been the thing you go to when you want something really small or really inexpensive. And, you know, back when the pie was 25 bucks, 30 bucks, and then you added a couple of accessories and you got it up and running, that was one thing. But today, realistically, you're spending a hundred and some dollars on a pie. And if you buy the Argo one, which you absolutely should, if you want active cooling and a full size HDMI port and stuff like that, now you're almost at 200 bucks. Um, so I, I think there's potentially better media player options out there than the pie, but suffice to say, a not insignificant portion of the community is running jelly or jellyfin on a pie four. So, if you've thought about doing that or have some sort of inclination to do that, apparently it works well enough. I may have to give this a shot just to see what all the fuss is about, so to speak. You know, are they running Jellyfin, the server on the Pi, and then using a separate device for the TV and playback? Or do you read this to be they're using these devices at the TV? Uh, well, definitely, I would say Richard seems to be using it as the server because I don't know that you would have Home Assistant and Zigbee to MQTT plugged into your TV. You wouldn't think so. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't think those two go together. Although with the uh, with James talking about uh, Cody, that definitely seems like a front end there, and I guess then it's doing both, or maybe maybe he's just saying you can use Cody to plug into a Jellyfin backend, uh, which is absolutely possible. So. It's it's hard to say, to be honest with you. And again, I go back to the Pi 4 is good. I just, I want it to go when I click the button. Yeah. And I, I'm rather relatively impatient. So there are some things I can be real patient for, like a backup. Whereas when I sit down at the end of the day, I just want to watch American Dad or whatever it is that I'm turning on. Mm. Yeah, I, that's part of what drives me towards the NVIDIA Shield is because it was designed as a gaming device, I just, I wait for nothing. It just works. 
Except for the ads. You wait for the ads. Well, I stay. I mean, I load Cody and then I just stay out of the home screen. So I, I see it when they boot up. But then other than that, I kind of ignore it. I mean, we live in Cody, I would say, 95% of the time. But we switch back and forth to, like, uh, Netflix or Prime or whatever when we want to watch a movie that isn't in our collection. Has the pricing in Netflix and the whole fiasco of any of that causing you to reconsider your subscription or no? Um, not really. I mean... There, There is some good movement there where, um, again, not to be too political, but there was a statement from the CEO that basically came out and said, well, you know, we cater to as many audiences as we can. And so if there are people in our company that don't like the content that we're serving, uh, they're free to work elsewhere. And and that got a, a thumbs up in, in my book. You know? Yeah. Like, so. They went I both mean, ways. They, you know, yeah, exactly. if you want to pay for it, you can pay for it. If you want ad supported content, you can go that route. But it's just, it's interesting that the direction that Netflix has gone DVD company or rent DVD rental company, kiosk company to, you know, mail order DVD to streaming to content producer to basically the new version of cable. Now you're back to ads and content. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see. It, it's a little sad to be honest with you, but we have our Netflix uh, because of the deal we got with our cell phone provider. So I'm not sure that we would continue to pay for it. But since it came with the, the cell phone plan, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have it for the foreseeable future. Fair enough. Simon writes in with a ZFS question. He says, hi, Noah and Steve. First off, I wanted to compliment you guys on your teaching style and how easily you can explain complex topics. I was listening to the latest episode a couple of days ago with a friend in the car, and she was following along, even though she does not have a tech background. Thanks for your commitment to the open source and spreading the knowledge. On to my question. In a recent episode, Steve mentioned ZFS compression and the advantages. Are there any benefits or caveats to choosing ZFS over EXT4 or even XFS? Also, I just want to hear from Noah since it's been a few years. So what is bad about ButterFS? And my last question for Steve, what are the advantages of using Push D? Thanks for the show, Simon. So we're going to work backwards. Steve, I'm going to ask you, uh, since he directly questions you, what do you have to say about Push D? So Push D is one of those things that came from, the legacy came from the seashell way back in the day. And seashell had this idea of, a directory stack. So it, I guess the lack of better way of putting it is it was a listing of, it was a list of directories that you might work from. The This idea of the stack has continued into modern day bash and everybody uses it without knowing it, except the stack only ever has one directory in it. And that's whatever directory you've CD'd into. So what happens with the CD in the background, it, it not only changes your directory, but it puts that directory to the top of the stack and then bumps out the bottom one. So if you can think about um, a just a listing of all of the directories that you might want to take action on, push what push D does is allows you to load these. So I, I wrote a small example in in the show notes here. And essentially if if you push use push D to say load your dot local, your dot config and your dot cache file, and then you pop off the current directory um, so there's push D and pop D pop D removes something from this, this stack where push D adds to it. So anyways, if you've loaded a bunch of these directories into your stack, then doing an LS will list all of the folders in your stack. Just the same thing as doing a DU will do 
take the disk usage from all of those directories in the stack. So if, for example, you wanted, you were sitting there thinking, how do I get DU to show me hidden directory breakdown? You could use push D to put all your hidden directories on your stack and then just run your DU from there. And it'll just, it'll just list DU from whatever directories are in your stack. Pardon my ignorance, but what is a stack? So like I said, a stack is this idea of just a list. It's a list of directories that um, the shell is tracking for you. So for example, there are like your shell will remember your current directory and your previous directory. And that's just a list of, you know, a directories. A stack is any arbitrary number of directories you want the shell to take some action on. So if you normally do like LS, it uses the stack behind the scenes. The stack is just the current directory, right? So in a, in a modern bash shell, the current directory is the only directory in the stack. So when you do LS, you see only the files in the directory that you're currently in, you know, assuming you didn't give it a, a path to mm -hmm. do the LS in. If you've added things to your stack with push D, LS will do an LS on every directory that's in that list. Okay. So in my example, I, I said, you know, I'm adding my dot local, my dot config and my dot cache file. And once those are pushed to my stack, if I do an LS, it'll list the files in all of those directories. And what can you give me a practical example in like, hey, this is the thing I'm doing and this is the situation I come across. And this is why I would want to add these hidden directories to my stack to cat them out or LS or whatever. Yeah, I was trying to think about this. Um the closest thing I could think of was like either searching for a file or um, doing some sort of space usage. There's a bunch of things you could do, like you could use it to use make directory and a bunch of directories and stuff like that. But there's also bash shorthands for that. So I'm not really sure why this exists now, other than it has been this legacy that we've pulled out of, I want to say the 80s, but it could have, it could have gone back even earlier than that. So... I don't really know why we would use it today. Like, I, I don't know anyone. I could query my friends on, at Red Hat, and I bet you out of 25 people, one person might actually know what this is. Mm. So there's very few of us that, that uh, care enough about old-timey technology. Like, I, part of it is I have this need to be able to know some of these tricks that I might have to do to move files around. Or You know, we've kind of talked about that before, where... I have a bunch of um, shell hacks. tricks, Call yeah, hacks. hacks that that get me by in my day job. But most people don't deal on that level. You know, they'll either be like, "Oh, I can't do it," or "You need to open this port up," or whatever. You're so um, lead, Steve. No, no, it's not that. It's I know interacting with other groups can be difficult politically, like get their time and all the rest of that. So if I can help my team be more efficient and self-sufficient, then that's really where I'm, I'm trying to be as a leader on the team. I love it. Uh, okay. So I, so, so here's what I want to do. I want to bring in our friend Linux Ninja. Who's there. Who's with us from mumble. Hey man. Hey Noah. So I'm hoping I can get both you and Steve to chime in here. So let's talk a little bit about the advantages and disadvantages. If there are some on ZFS compression, um, what do you I mean, think? BTFS. Uh, well, let's start with ZFS compression uh, advantages or disadvantages. I mean, I can take that if you want okay. me to, Linux yeah. Ninja. Yeah, I don't use ZFS. 
Sure. Um, so the principles will, principles will be the same on, on B3FS as it is on ZFS. But in general, on ZFS, um, you've got three main compression types. You've got GZIP, you've got LZ4, and Z standard. So th- those are the, the main compression types that you have. GZIP will be the most efficient in terms of compressing down, and this is what you do if you need maximum disk space savings. Uh, but it's also the slowest in terms of writing and reading um, and co- creating that, that compression. Then you've got LZ4, which was the standard, um, you know, kind of the golden standard um, up until a couple of years ago when Z standard came out. So the advantages of this uh, on modern CPUs, they are fast enough to be able to decompress LZ4 and Z standard basically without you even noticing that they're doing any work because these these two compression standards were specifically designed to be easily extractable. What this means is in your system, NVMe is excluded, uh, your slowest part is normally the hard disk, even if it's a fast SSD. That means that the less time you spe- you, you spend pulling information off the disk, the faster your system will be. So using compression with LZ4 or Z standard, say you've got a 100 meg file and that compresses down to 40 megs. Your disk only has to withdraw 40 megs and because the way that these algorithms work, they're already extracting as soon as you're you're accessing the file. And then so from your standpoint, you don't notice that it's any slower. In fact, we've actually noticed that there has been in many cases an increase in speed just because the disk access is completely limited. So ultimately, you've got the advantages of saving space and actually having a bit of speed added to your system because you're not relying so much as fetching things on and off the disk. Very cool. So, Simon, if that doesn't answer your question, please write back in live at com and let us know there's any additional information you're looking for. So on to B3FS. I apologize, Linux Ninja. I know you've corrected me in the past. I get it wrong. I'll learn. B3FS. Tell me a little bit. Of, so, so a little backup here. So the re, the the my skepticism of B3FS comes from an article published on LinuxNinja.guru in, in, in uh, November of 2019 where you systematically go through and outline the concerns that you have with B3FS. Now, since that time, we've had some of the developers from B3FS on the show address some of these concerns directly, and many of them, not all, but many of them have been either resolved or significant process forward. So I'm going to just ask kind of an open-ended question. Where do we stand in your opinion today with B3FS? Well, I wrote that article November 2019 using information from the B3FS documentation, webpage, wiki, uh, because I knew nothing about it at the time. And I just wanted to gather all that together in one place. And people who talked about it being, you know, not yet mature, not ready for prime time, not ready for production, you know, all that, just, you know, published all of those concerns 
and then you know I've I've joined um, communities centered around BTFS. You know, uh, there's a matrix room for BTFS. Uh, there's you know, the developer types hanging out in there, and you're right. Most of those concerns have been since addressed. And I've been running BTFS as my primary driver on my two desktops and laptop now for many months. Uh, as, as, a, <laughs> as a matter of fact, uh, I just bought a second NVMe drive for my desktop that I'm on now and added it and went through the process of adding it as a second device uh, to my BTFS file system and did a rebalance where I modified it to RAID 1. So I'm now fully redundant, and now I can do monthly scrubs and look for checksum errors and correct them. So I'm, I'm going through the exercise of you know what does it look like to run BTFS full-time on a, you know, a very dependable – modern, um, you know, important system like I have here. And all the issues I've run into have either been minor or not directly BTFS related. Uh, those issues uh, being attributed directly to like time shift, which is a common tool for doing automated snapshots. I've run into some issues with Snapper, which is the other common tool, and, you know, work those out. So I can say from my experience over the last many months, I am comfortable and happy running BTFS as my primary driver. No major issues to this point. Uh, even converting from uh, single to RAID 1 was painless. And I would recommend it to anyone looking for the advantages of running a native compressed file system or being able to use something like BTFS send and receive for uh, moving your data off of one system onto another. What would you... What prompted the reevaluation of BTFS? At what point did you look at it and say, okay, this is happening in this street, or this has changed, or what was the catalyst that, uh, that caused you to reevaluate this? Well, I think you were the straw that broke the camel's back. I think you convinced me that I need to go and, and sit down and, and have a look at it and try it out, that if I was going to you know, write an article that people go read that says, here's why I don't use it, well, maybe I need to go have another look. So folks in our group like uh, Conan uh, and others, especially now that Red Hat is, is doing BTFS by default, um, it's one of those things that uh, an engineer like me needs to go learn because hmm. they are eventually going to need to know it. Yeah, and it's constantly changing. Well, that's that's interesting. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and share uh, on, on your BTFS journey. I, I would love to have you back in a few months and see how it's working out. Um, Obviously, this is uh, BTFS is here to stay, and it seems to be going in a very positive direction. So far, I've enjoyed using it. Um, the compression is wonderful. The um, the redundancy I have now is um, you know setting my mind at ease about you know losing an NVMe drive. And if I do encounter a problem, I'll get to see firsthand how difficult it is to try to troubleshoot and solve. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm sticking with it. I'm not going back to um, Extended 4 anytime soon, uh, except for on virtual machines. A um, couple of little issues, and I'll write a follow-up article detailing uh, what I've run into so far. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, yeah, and when would that – do you have a plans to do that, or is it just like a, at some point I'll, I'll get there? I've got a draft going, so as, okay. as soon as I get all the details filled in, um, I'll let you know when it's published. Awesome, my friend. Thanks for the time. Yes, sir. Again, 855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. You can join the program live at AskNoahShow.com. That is the email. Our sixth email comes in from Pat. Pat writes in and says, Hi, Noah. Fantastic show. On episode 285, I've been using 
my open source NVR software. It's a platform called Orchard Core VMS for my RTSP IP cameras running on KDE Plasma. I would like to get it running on a TrueNAS scale, but they also offer Orchard Fusion for multi-location. You can add this to one of your lists if you like. Any links to ipconfigured.com. Pat, I have to tell you, I, I was blown away that, I mean, truly shocked that this has existed out in the world and it has not come across my radar before. I have been looking at NVR solutions. I've been looking at them tangentially since like 2010, 2011, and I got really serious about doing IP as we kind of switched at AltaSpeed over to installing IP cameras as opposed to analog cameras in that 20, I don't know, 14, 15 era. Um, and it just, for a long, long time, it was just miserable, particularly on Linux. And there were a couple of players that had come up and, and gone, and you really wound up in one of three camps. Either it was a completely proprietary solution that worked fine, it was a Linux solution that didn't work real great, or it was a solution that ran on Linux and it worked great, but it was really, really expensive, and there were crappy licensing around it, and it was proprietary. And none of those were ideal boats. Uh, I spent almost an hour today digging into to Orchard, and this is awesome. We, I immediately shared it with my team and said, we have to look into this more. We have to play with this more. I can't believe this has been out there. So we'll have a link for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com, the website, ipconfigured.com, but it is a full open source solution. And one of the things that I particularly liked is their licensing terms are perpetual. So again, you're getting to benefit from all of the work that these guys are doing, but you don't have, if you pay for something, you get to use it for life regardless of what this company ends up doing or what their longevity is. So a huge thanks to Pat for sending that in. Again, we'll have links for you in the show notes, and I will be back with an update on what this looks like in real life as we start to deploy it. Tubit asks the questions bot. It's Marlon. He's in the chat room. You can message him anytime, day or night, 24-7, 365. He never sleeps. He's always there to take your questions and deliver them right in front of our eyeballs as we do the show. Cole, or, excuse me, at sign questions colon linuxdelta.com you can join the chat room at linuxgeeklab.ninja 2bit asks the bot says i am looking to replace fans in my dell power connect 6248 with something quieter my home lab rack is in my office so i'm trying to keep the noise as low as possible do you have any suggestions so i don't work a whole lot with dell switches so your google foo is likely as good as my google foo but what i came back with is uh, for 30 bucks, you can buy uh, some power supply replacement fans for the Dell uh, 6248. And um, according to the description, they are quiet fans. Uh, I don't know how to... Uh, how to uh, solid or how to quantify that? Other than to say that the description says 18 uh, dBA of noise versus the 24 dBA on stock fans, so little quieter. But then again, uh, sound is linear or is not linear; it is logarithmic. So hopefully that helps. Um, but I'll have a link for you in the show notes, and you let me know how that works for you. Our pick of the week this week is the Ploopy. <laughs> you ready for this? It's an open source trackball. A small company called Ploopy, started by brothers Colin and Phil Lamb, has created a trackball, also called the Ploopy, that has no annoying software. Instead, it relies on QMK, an open source firmware originally created for keyboards that store all of the crucial settings on the hardware instead of on the computer. 
Floopy's trackballs rely on a combination of relatively easy-to-source sensors, PCBs, and a whole lot of 3D-printed parts. The Lamb Brothers created Ploopy with the idea that there would be other nerds like them willing to participate in the project and create cool tweaks and mods. And man, were they right. The Ploopy Thumb Trackball includes a completely assembled trackball, fully tested, and is ready to use right out of the box. So, there is a ongoing uh, battle, if you will. Blood has been shed at Speed Technologies, and it is the battle of mice. I am firmly in the trackball camp. I think it's a more uh, precise tool that allows for better control uh, because it separates the movement of the cursor from the actions of clicking or or context clicking. It it all around is a better implementation of controlling a cursor, in my personal opinion. The other side of the the, the wackos think that this MX Master nonsense that is essentially a quasi-keyboard um, built in to look like a mouse, they're, they're, they're in that camp. And so up until now, I've been an M570, and I, I did purchase the new uh, really fancy trackball that Logitech made, and I didn't really think it was worth the money, to be honest with you. But the Ploopy is cool because it's an open source implementation and because everything, to include the design, is open source. It's very, very Pine64-esque. Um, you're going to pay for this device if you want to purchase one. They are 209 Canadian dollars or two, between 200 and 230 Canadian dollars. And Steve, can you help me with my Canadian math? What does that translate to in good old American buckaroos? <laughs> good old American buckaroos. <laughs> uh, somewhere in the 150 range, depending on what the exchange rate's currently floating at. Yeah, so that's $50 higher than the Logitech one that I just got done saying I didn't think was quite worth the money. So if you're a idealist and you're willing to support a company like this on principle, then I think this is a fantastic idea. Um, wedges are available for the mice. They rotate the thumb by 10 degrees and can be stacked. So 20 degrees, 30 degrees, etc. So if you're looking for one, you choose the option at checkout. The Ploopy trackball ships with QMK preloaded. Currently, they're shipping version 0.14.17. You can find a fork of the KM at QMK firmware located on their site, which we'll have linked for you in the show notes over at podcast.asknoahshow.com. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. Kali Linux 2022.2 has released with 10 new tools, WSL improvements, and more. Fedora 36 has released. And if you're a fan of Fedora and the budgie desktop, you're in luck. A version is coming to Fedora Linux soon. Red Hat has released RHEL version 9. And while all the headlines have focused on RHEL 9, for more pragmatic Linux users, Red Hat Enterprise Linux 8.6 has also been released. Rocky Linux developer has landed $26 million in funding for enterprise open source push. Aven, a software company that combines open source technologies with cloud infrastructure, has announced that it has raised $210 million in Series D funding at a pre-money valuation of $3 billion. For those trackball fans out there, there's a new company called Ploopy with plans to make an open source trackball. NVIDIA has finally decided to release open source GPU kernel modules. Intel, however, in recent weeks has been poaching open source veterans from the likes of Apple and Netflix, as it looks to clean up the Linux kernel and reestablish a dialogue with the open source community. In other industry news, GM has teamed up with Red Hat for a Linux vehicle operating system. Docker has finally brought its container development and deployment tool, Docker Desktop, to Linux. The Google open source maintenance crew will support under-resourced critical open source projects to fix security issues. Researchers at Brown University have open sourced a mobile AR hand object interaction library. 
The open source division of Meta is transferring Jest to the OpenJS Foundation. The Cloud Native Computing Foundation has developed a new certification for developers looking to better incorporate ethical first thinking into their open source software design. China's military-derived and government-approved Linux distribution, Ubuntu Kailen, has revealed plans to target a second RISC-V processor. The United States Air Force IT chief is bullish on open source. Lauren Nausenberger, the Air Force's chief information officer, said, while there's no such thing as complete secure software, open source can make it stronger through the power of the crowd. And lastly, the Linux Foundation and Open Source Security Foundation brought together over 90 executives from 35 companies and government leaders from the NSC, ONCD, CISA, NIST, DOE, and OMB on Thursday to reach a consensus on key actions to take and improve resiliency and security of open source software. So, Steve, I, so first I have to back up for a second. That was the alphabet soup there at the end, was it not? Yeah, maybe. Couldn't believe that. So, Steve, you travel a lot for work, right? In the before time. In the before time, before the before the end of the world apocalypse COVID stuff. Okay. So when you're traveling, this includes, in fact, you have an upcoming trip out of the country. And so there are a number of different considerations that people in our situation have to take into account. I frequently have three laptops at any one time. I've got my personal laptop. I've got my UltraSpeed laptop. And it would be a very rare period of time for me not to have at least one or more uh, client laptops that they've issued me. And so and then I have my backpack full of goodies as I go through an airport. So to say that uh, I am a fun individual to TSA is 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 a, is a gross understatement, and I'm sure you kind of follow that same path. But we're also both of us are very privacy conscious, and when going into other countries or even returning back into the U.S., uh, Customs and Border Protection obviously has a vested interest in making sure that prohibited material isn't coming or leaving the country, and so there are they're going to search uh, devices and possessions and and those kinds of things, and obviously. Technology like encryption prevents that. Um, so I, I want to start. I want to start with just kind of an open-ended general question. What kind of considerations do you do you think about, or do you lay out when you're looking at taking a trip somewhere, either domestically or international, and how do those differ? Yeah, they definitely differ for me. Um, so when I'm when I am leaving a country, um, I rarely bring my primary phone. Now, it, it really depends uh, on a lot of factors, whether that holds true. Definitely when I cross seas. If I'm going between U.S. and Canada, um, I'm, I'm a little more lax with that. Um, I'm, I'm likely to take the step of turning my phone off um, because there are some, depending on your country, so I'm not a lawyer, but depending on your country, um, your biometrics, whether it's your face ID, if you've, you're on Apple or your thumbprint, those are not considered passwords. So right. you can be compelled to use them to unlock your phone. So if your phone is off and they tell you to boot it up, those don't work as a general rule on the first boot. So uh, that would be the step that I take when I'm traveling between U.S. and Canada. If I'm leaving uh, like Mexico or somewhere overseas, I absolutely leave my phone behind 
Um, and I'll take, I have a Nexus 5 that I just flashed with the latest version of Lineage whenever it is that I am leaving the country. So um, it doesn't, it doesn't have pretty much all of the normal things that I might have on my phone. And I even take the interesting step of making sure I have my hardware token for work as opposed to the soft token, um, because the soft token means that I have to have authenticator with whatever else kind of gibberish on there. So I, I have my hardware token that's stored away somewhere. Um, and I carry a different phone. I also don't bring my primary laptop anywhere, so really? it will have nope. I don't I don't bring my primary laptop with me over definitely not overseas. So I'll be taking a Fedora laptop with me, which is not my primary one. Um so you wanna you wanna have at it? Sure. I'll decrypt it for you. Here you go. Have fun. Like um so it it's a it's an inconvenience for me because it's not things I don't have bookmarks or the file sync turned on or anything like that. And I have, I haven't decided whether I'm going to have Bitwarden installed or whether I'm just going to use it on the website um, for when I need to do stuff like that. So I, I haven't really decided how I'm going to handle that. Uh, if you don't want to answer this question on the air, I'd completely understand. But do you memorize your Bitwarden passphrase or is that something that you would have to reference? And if so, would you bring that with you? Oh, I absolutely memorize my Bitwarden passphrase. Okay. So nothing is requ- everything that you need to get into Bitwarden is in your head. Yeah. What when you um, when you look at this burner phone, this Nexus that you flash with lineage, you said if they ask you and said, hey, decrypt this, you would say, OK, and decrypt it and say, have fun. Is there not a principal point where you say, no, I'm not doing this because in principle, this is my data, my privacy. And if you want to take my phone away, have at it, Hoss, you're never getting into it. I'm not going to participate in that. Does that does that play into it at all for you or not so much? No, because the the deal you make going to another country is you don't have any right to be there. You just haven't. And if they decide to turn you around, they can turn you around. And if they just like they could decide, you know what? You smell. Go home. Like they they're fully within their rights to do that wherever you are. And people lose sight of this fact. So, you know, if I'm going somewhere, wherever it is, chances are I actually want to go there. And so if the price of me going there is turning over a phone that doesn't have any information on it, all right. Like, you'll have my phone number because that'll be attached to it, but I'm pretty sure these people would have my phone number anyways. Yeah. So, so, you, you, so you, you, you take this burner phone, you go into the country. At any point, do you put the, any of the data back onto the phone while you're in the country? Not usually. The... The limited stuff I might have might be for the airline that I'm traveling with so that I use their app. It depends. And that one that one really depends on how much hassle I feel like going through, like mm. printing out the boarding passes and stuff like that. Um, there was a time where I would, I would do that, and I definitely was more apt to do that going back into Canada because the Canadian border guards, they can't really just seize your things because you have a right to be in the country, mm. right? So... There's there's a ground to be stand to. There's a reason that you might consider making your life more more convenient by putting the data back on. But at the same time, part of it is just like, what if I lose the phone? What if somebody steals the phone? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, you've stolen my Nexus Five. I'm sure that's worth thirty dollars. Right. Like. Right. So I want to bounce something off of you. When I've traveled internationally. Like you, I've been cognizant of the fact that I'm not a resident of that country, and so I'm asking permission to be in that country. 
Um, I would tell you that I personally would stop short of decrypting anything that actually had private data on it, even if that means I'm stuck in the airport or I cancel a trip and have to turn around and come home. That, yeah, I would I would choose that. However, what I have done, and I'm interested to get your, your take on it, I'll take my actual primary laptop, I'll wipe it, fresh install of whatever, plain Jane vanilla Kubuntu uh, or whatever. So I ha- And then usually I'll have a little flash drive or a little hard drive. Um, with some entertainment for the flight and so on and so forth. And when I get into the country, pass customs, all of that, then I will grab my VPN certs, log back in, get my C file creds, and then have my entire laptop sync back down. And uh, then before I leave, I reverse the process again. Fresh, fresh, clean wipe. It is the most uninteresting laptop to any. It's not encrypted. Nothing is, is just completely not interesting you can boot it up you can see it's a stock background all the things great and it becomes my laptop only on either side of customs and border protection am i missing something am i being silly some way or is it just too much time and hassle for being in a country for a few days i mean so there is something to be said for having your your thing encrypted regardless of whether you have anything on it for me, it's a requirement. If I'm going to be using my laptop for work in any capacity, it is a requirement from Red Hat. doesn't matter what operating system you're using. The hard drive needs to be encrypted. That's just that's just the rules. So mm. if I'm at all planning to have any sort of contact with work, then it, you know it has to be encrypted. If I'm going for pleasure, I don't bring my laptop. I never do. It stays home. Um, if, I'm, if I'm completely going off the grid, it'll be like cell phone goes in the the little um, safe that's in your hotel room or mm-hmm. in your hotel. I turn it off. I usually take my watch off, stick my watch in there, and then I don't touch those things until it's the day before or whatever I need to do to make arrangements. So Really? Yep. So uh, so to be clear, when when I say, you know, it's only unencrypted and a vanilla OS until I get into, like, let's say the hotel room. At that point, it's re- reloaded with the distro that I'm actually going to use. Encryption goes back on there, and then all my data gets loaded back onto the computer. Sure, I mean you do you. I'm just saying that uh, it, it would be it would be weird for me to break my profile because I'm sure that somebody's profiled me. My mm. my laptop has been encrypted every time I I go across the border, and if they ask, I tell them like this is what work requires me to do. So mm. have you ever have you ever had anybody give you a hard time about that? Like, hey, we're going to need to see what's in it, that kind of thing. Uh, they've asked me to turn it on and decrypt it. They've never actually asked me to. They uh, so the most I've had is like, prove to me this is an actual computer, yeah. right? Yep. So turn it on, launch Firefox. Here you go. Look, see, it goes on the internet. Good enough. Have a good day, sir. I have I have every time I've had my bag searched at customs, I've had them ask me to turn it on. I've never had them ask me to decrypt it. Um, and again, part of that is oftentimes if I'm going through, I won't have my laptop decrypted, but. Even in the times that I have, they've never asked me to enter in a password. Like you said, they just want to see that I'm not hiding some sort of an explosive inside of what looks like a computer. No, this is a real computer. It boots. It works. That kind of thing. Yeah, but when you've got Lux encryption, though, it drops you to a dark shell that everybody calls a DOS shell, right? <laughs> Waiting for your like password yeah. prompt. So, Yeah. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about international travel. Let's talk about domestic travel as it relates to Hackerfests, things like Black Hat. Um, these are places where when I'm going into another country, largely 
I'm relying on the I'm 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 banking on the fact that I'm not that interesting. I'm a person out of a bunch of people. When you go to conferences that are designed like DefCon or Black Hat, these kinds of places, um, what you're worried about being is low hanging fruit, right? And so anything that you potentially have becomes low hanging fruit. And then to add insult to injury, if you follow a lot of the security research, more and more we are learning about security vulnerabilities that you can't get rid of. Like there are um, different attacks that are used that are leveraged against machines. And once the malware or uh, malicious software gets onto the machine, it can be almost impossible to remove off of the machine. And so I have a strict adherence of I take burner devices. I'll eBay myself a $100 laptop or a phone. I take it there. I use it. And then it gets sold or tossed or donated when I get back. And I will not attend or be in an environment where I know that there are people, very talented people, smarter people than I, that are actively trying to uh, run exploits and and see what they can do. Have you put have you have you had any experience with that or have you do you have any thoughts on what makes sense and what's just plain paranoid tin hat too tight? I don't bring my laptops with me around in conferences, so I'm not really worried about that. As for um, someone looking to exploit, I suppose it could happen while I was actively using it in the hotel room on my VPN. I guess that's possible. Um, I'm not super worried about that because that would mean that they would have to be exploiting something like Bluetooth where they're pretty close to me mm. uh, because I go in a, I go in a hotel and the very first thing that happens is the, the VPN goes up. So, uh, but again, I, I don't, if the purpose is going to a conference, unless I'm giving the talk, I'm not bringing my laptop because I just find it's just an anchor. Now, that's fair. Do you have any other thoughts on traveling or security precautions or anything else that you've picked up or experienced that you'd say, hey, this is something that somebody would want to know. If you're going to travel internationally, you should be aware of this. You should be prepared for this. I mean, most of it's on the softer side of things when you're when you're dealing with uh, security guards or, or border guards, you know, they they tend to see lots of really poorly behaved people and doing your best to kind of mitigate that in some fashion just goes a long ways. Like I can't imagine that job, the number of people that would just be so angry at them for, for reasons, or, you know, they're running late and they get mad mm. because, you know, whoever, whomever is doing their job. Um, and so I, I empathize anybody that has to deal with a large volume of people. I don't want that job. And I empathize with them immensely. So I, I try to be cognizant of that, right? Do all the things before they ask. Like, here's my mm. laptop. Do you want to see it open? Shall I turn it on for you? Like, you know. Really? You go that yep. far, huh? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why not? Uh, because I wouldn't want... To me, I always try to stay as, I guess, minimal as possible. Like, I don't want to draw any attention to myself. I don't want to stand out. I just want to be another face that passes through the little checkpoint. Didn't you say you travel with three laptops? I do. Yeah, like I said, I, I no, I really, I have. I've attracted more than than my share of unwanted attention at times. But again, I, I certainly would. Ne I, I personally have never offered to do anything. I, you know, if they ask, then I'll begrudgingly comply to the point that I find it reasonable. Um, but that that's interesting. So you'll you'll tr you try to go above and beyond to be, uh, I guess, compliant and kind and what outgoing. 
Well, I guess the the point is is that um, if I can be memorable as like, hey, I just had the the worst day, but you know, this one guy was actually kind of nice, and and it was nice to actually have someone who who actually stopped and and cared about what you know, how mm. are you going, or you know, the the times where I actually tell them thank you for doing their job, especially when it's it's I think it's well done. You should mm. see the surprise on their face, like they they never hear that. I bet. I'll, yeah, I'll round out with this. I one of the one of my favorite things, and I uh, more often than not, I would say this happens. U.S. Customs and Border Protection has a habit when they see an American passport coming back through, they'll say "Welcome home." And I don't know. There's something about that that always kind of that always just kind of tickles me in a fancy way. I'm just like, oh, that's kind of cool. Um, so thanks to the people that do that job. You're right; they have a terrible job and are often. Um, just short of abused by the people that they're there to serve. So huge thank you to the people that do that job. Um, please respect people's privacy. Okay. Anything else as far as the actual travel themselves? We've talked a little bit about security precautions. What about creature comforts? When you're on the plane or when you're in the airport, what kind of things do you have available uh, for entertainment and such? Well, let, before we talk about that, I'd say give some serious thought to how you're packing your things. So if you're rooting around, think about the the disruption that you might cause people around you, especially you get to your seat and how many people, how many people have seen this? You get to the seat and the person in front of you is just like rooting around frantically for something (laughs) in their backpack so that they can get their backpack in the above seat, but they don't know where this thing is. And Mm. everybody's just kind of waiting for this person. And then they try to politely like do the Lego thing where they're contorting their body in some strange way to try and let people pass while they're rooting around like uh give some thought to where things are like Mm. i i make sure i make sure that i know exactly where the thing is that i'm going for and it comes out and goes back in the same spot two seconds or less like it's it's up and out like headphones go in the same spot they're they're unencumbered they're untangled from anything you know the tablet comes out um, I tend to use books, but if I'm on a super long flight, I will. I also will um, use a tablet, and I have the stuff from Plex synced down or from Netflix or wherever. Um, but yeah, that that tends to be what I do. I have books or um, audio books that I'm listening to. So I dovetail off that and round up by just saying that I have a backpack that I really like, Briggs and Riley. And what I like about it in particular is it allows me to have all of the things in dedicated pockets so I can find them and access them easily and avoid being the person that Steve was talking about. Hey, the music in our ears means we're out of time. Thanks for joining us for our discussion. Uh, we record this show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. If you'd like to be part of the discussion, we invite you to join us either in our interactive mumble room. You can call us on the phones. We're very flexible about how we take your feedback. We're looking for segments, so please, 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 please write in to live at asknoahshow.com. Let us know what kind of segment would you like us to do. If we were to put a little bit of time and plan something a little bit ahead of time, what would that look like? Live at asknoahshow.com. We'll see you back here next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Mm-hmm.